The man's finger hesitated over the remote control. To his relief, a hand waved from the car and the vehicle moved down the ramp into the car park. He started counting. Ten seconds for the car to park, ten for the guards to join the children waiting for the lift. He smiled, glanced at his watch and pressed the button. Derek Anderson took his time packing up his equipment. Last time he'd packed up, he'd taken the remote apart first. This time he did it last. Over time he knew you could easily fall into a routine, and it was routine that made you vulnerable. Within minutes he'd removed the telephoto lens, changed the film, and packed the camera away in its bag. Gently he unscrewed the aerial from the remote and replaced it on his mobile phone. He held the remote up to the window and pressed the button. It was now a functioning light meter giving him a reading of 250 at f8. He looked around the small room. Satisfied that he had left no trace, he turned to the door. There was no need to be careful going down the stairs. He could have fallen the entire way and nobody would have heard a thing above the noise from the bar. Derek ducked into the nearest toilet, flushed it and re-emerged. For a moment he considered heading out the side door into the alley for one last look at the embassy building but decided against it. What he needed was a drink. Agua con gas, por favor. For a moment, he wondered if he were drawing attention to himself by not drinking the house wine or the cerveza that the locals were enjoying. But he dismissed the thought. Never drink before a job. It was one of his golden rules. Anyway, today he was simply another British tourist with a camera. Today was the dry run, the dress rehearsal. Across the road, behind the embassy's high security fence, everything would be as usual. The ambassador's wife would be spending time with her children. He hoped they were having a pleasant day, because in just under 24 hours, they would all be dead. He took his time, sipping his drink, watching the street. It was all so normal. After a while, he shouldered the camera bag and headed out onto the sidewalk. The traffic in the Venezuelan capital was as heavy as usual and it took him ten minutes to hail a taxi. It took even longer to get back to the Tamanaco Intercontinental on Avenida Principal de las Mercedes. At last count, the population of Caracas had been well over three million and it seemed to Derek that every one of them was in the traffic jam in front of him. He wound up the cab window, but it did nothing to lessen the cacophony of horns and whistles from the frustrated drivers of the hundreds of cars and motorbikes. It was still around 28 degrees. With the nighttime temperature unlikely to drop below 23, he was looking forward to the air-conditioned hotel room. More than that, he was looking forward to tomorrow. Eight months of preparation would culminate in a single explosive second, and he would be able to leave the heat, humidity and pollution of Caracas behind him. Derek paid off the cab a block from the hotel and merged into the early evening crowd of pedestrians. He took his time, did some window shopping. His flaxen hair made him an obvious mark for the young street hustlers who were plentiful even in this affluent part of the city. He brushed them off, feigning ignorance of the remarkable number of languages they all appeared to have mastered. He moved with the crowd, letting it carry him along. A tale would have been impossible to spot and pointless to avoid, but he checked anyway. If anyone was aware of his movements, they would already know where he was staying. If they knew that much, then he was in deep trouble. He glanced at the cars struggling to make headway along the road. 
nothing unusual. The taxi he had been in was only just abreast of him. It had picked up another fare and was going nowhere fast. Still, an unease was growing in him, an indefinable sense that something was wrong. Maybe it was simply paranoia. He strolled past the hotel entrance. Halfway along the next block, he turned and merged into the crowds heading in the opposite direction. He scanned ahead of him for the telltale ripple caused by someone hesitating, stopping, or suddenly changing direction. Either they were very good, or they were not there. This time Derek entered the hotel, pausing only to pick up a copy of the Washington Post from the newsstand in the foyer. He tucked the paper under his arm and made his way to the lift. Back in his suite, he rang room service and ordered a hamburger and fries. Knowing from previous experience how long it would take to arrive, he had a shower, then plugged in his laptop and checked his email. There was a message from Raptor. The sense of unease he had experienced earlier welled up again. The understanding between them had always been that they contacted each other only in extreme emergencies. Derek activated his decryption key and read the email. Cancel all your engagements. The flash is blown. He reread it, then sat for a long time simply looking at the screen. His whole world had just fallen apart. Chapter 2 from the back blocks of Tasmania to the streets of Sydney was more than a geographic shift. It was a different world. For Anna McLeod, at 19, Sydney was a steep learning curve. Looking back, she was amazed that she had made it this far. From the moment she had stepped on the ferry in Devonport to the moment she got off the bus from Melbourne, it had all been new. Before that, Brian, her father, had done everything for her, fiercely protective of her since her mother's death. He had kept her by his side, whether on his rare trips outside the valley or on his frequent excursions deep into the bush looking for shingle trees. Her father had always stressed how important it was to look first and act second, and Anna was a quick learner. She took her father's lessons and applied them to her new environment, honing her paranoia, and soon got street smart about what was cool and what wasn't. After her initial experiences, she kept well clear of the creeps and the junkies. She looked for the signs, just like her father had taught her. She had been so small then, but she could still remember his face. She could remember his voice telling her that if there was something wrong on the inside, there was always a sign on the outside. Like trees, Anna, he once said. Like that tree. They'd been out looking for shingle trees. She must have been nine or ten because it was after her mother's death, and she'd started to go everywhere with her father after that. He didn't like to leave her at home because he said it was dangerous. How? She hadn't been able to see anything wrong with the outside of the tree. Now, years later, she could still remember that tree vividly. It had seemed to go up so straight to where it merged into the canopy high above her head. There was a vapour up there where the leaves lived. It played tricks with the light, softened things. She liked that. Not a shingle tree. Her father's head was back, his Adam's apple bobbing as he swallowed. All right for milling, maybe, or fence posts. Too good for firewood, but not good enough for shingles. They needed shingles. The last lot, eighteen inches long, five inches wide, had been laid before Anna was born. The outer layers, although oiled, had gone grey. 
Inside, great splotches of lichen grew in places, green, white and pink birthmarks. One of your mama's shingles, her father would say whenever they discovered a new leak, or rather, when a new leak discovered them, for it never seemed to leak somewhere useful, like into the little bathtub or the sink or the indoor herb garden. The water would enter somewhere high up, wait for the wind to drive it between the three deep shingles, and then run downwards, seeking them out. And it always seemed to find them, at the dinner table or beside the fire, once over her father's bed. Your mama's shingles, and he would shake his head. Yet, when strangers came and asked about the roof, he always said that he had laid them. Eight and a half thousand shingles, hand split. He'd been very proud of that roof. Look at the bark, he said now. What does it say to you? Anna emulated his stance, legs apart, hands on hips, head back, cocked to one side. Maybe that helped, because then she saw what he was seeing. It twists a little. She glanced out of the corner of her eye at him to see how she was doing. His slow nodding was reassuring. From left to right, she said with more confidence. This was rewarded with a smile. Very good, Anna, he said quietly. Now tell me why. It was trying to follow the sun when it was young. He was looking at her now, the kind of look that made her feel all warm inside, as though he was proud and amazed at the same time. Absolutely right, he said. It twists to follow the sun. You can see it in the bark. And if it's twisted on the outside, then the grain inside won't split straight. And won't be any good for shingles, she finished. And Anna had always remembered it, the notion about outsides and insides. 